So um, I'm about two-thirds finished or through with uh, making commentary on the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse the Buddha gave, or supposed to have given, on the uh, foundations of mindfulness or on the establish- establishing of mindfulness. And um, there are something like 21 sections, or some people say 21 exercises in mindfulness in this little discourse. And each of these exercises are meant to be exercises that can cultivate mindfulness, develop mindfulness. They're considered appropriate places to place the attention so mindfulness can develop. And there are places to develop that presence of mind that can bring with us in all all kinds of situations. Um, As I've been saying, the... um, the way that the text is interpreted and developed, interpretations are developed as practices down through the ages has changed. It changes over time, as these things do. And there are different ways of understanding this text. Scholars who study the text uh, will say that, you know, probably the Buddha didn't give this whole text as it's written. Uh, because they see that a lot of the sections of the text, a lot of these different exercises, appear independently elsewhere in the Buddhist canon. And so the thought is that probably at some point um, all these independent little exercises were gathered together in one place and uh, kind of a systematic whole. And, um, and then as it's come down to us, as different Buddhist traditions will divide up the text again in different parts and will pick out those parts that uh, seem most relevant to them or that uh, speak to them most or seem most suited to them or something so it's a fluid text, and the exercises are fluid. Um, um, one way of understanding the text, which I, uh, I talked about in a talk almost a year ago now, is that it could be seen as a progressive uh, discussion, that uh, the different exercises build on each other. And uh, I like that interpretation quite a bit, because it begins with mindfulness of the body. And so much of the meditation practice in Buddhism, Buddhist spiritual development, has to do with becoming embodied, being in the body. And that then becomes the foundation for doing the other work. And um, and overall, it's my impression it's a lot healthier for everyone concerned to have the body to, uh, be the foundation for the spiritual work. And I know sometimes there's a tendency in, in spiritual circles for people to have a kind of disembodied spirituality, uh, a spirituality that's about uh, particular states of mind or particular experiences that might have nothing to do with your body at all. And um, those kinds of things are talked about in Buddhism, but they're usually uh, they happen after a person's really had this foundation in the body. You don't bypass the body, but you go through the body as a way of developing your practice. So it starts on the body. And then uh, today we're going to talk about the second foundation. There's four foundations Today we'll talk, all this discussion so far, I think we've maybe been talking about it for eight or nine weeks now, it has been about um, mindfulness of the body, different exercises to do with the body. And now today we're going to shift the discussion to what's called mindfulness of feelings. So it turns out that it seems a lot easier to understand feelings if you're kind of already in your body to some degree. And then from there we'll go into the mind, what's called the mindfulness of the mind. And it's considered a lot easier to be mindful of your mind if you have know how to be mindful of feelings and if you know how to be mindful of your body. 
And then based on those four, three foundations, then the fourth foundation is something called mindfulness of dhammas or dharmas. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But um, this is, uh, the, when you start looking at the exercises given in this last section, um, they're, they're uh, focusing on those elements of the mind or the heart, those, ele- those internal elements, that either lead us to greater bondage, greater suffering, greater entanglement with um, suffering, or the opposite, that which leads to greater liberation. So it's, it's, it's looking at those particular uh, elements that either keep us enslaved or keep us suffering or liberate us. And it ends with the last exercise being one of the most profound um, and on the one hand, most easiest Buddhist teachings to understand and the other hand, perhaps the most difficult one to understand, at least the most difficult one to apply completely. And this whole exercise, these 21 different exercises, ends with um, developing mindfulness around the Four Noble Truths. And, uh, and all this other stuff before that can be seen as a foundation to be able to really use the Four Noble Truths in a very deep, penetrating way in your life. So that's one way. I like that kind of interpretation of the text, that it kind of, kind of develops that way. But there are certainly other ones, and there are some teachers who focus almost primarily on one of the foundations as opposed to the other three. So, for example, the most common thing is to focus on mindfulness of the body. Just put tremendous emphasis on that particular section. So now we're going to move into the mindfulness of feelings. Now, I'm not sure why these Western Buddhists who speak English persist, including myself, I don't know why I keep doing it, persist in translating this word as feelings. The word is vedana. And... um, and when we say feelings in English, what do you think about? Mindfulness, we're going to talk about mindfulness of feelings. What's, what is your, what's your association with that? Those of you who don't know the technical Buddhist vocabulary. Emotions, emotions right. You're going to learn all about how to be mindful of your emotions. You know, like happiness and anger and sadness and all these wonderful things, right? But that's not what it's meant here. So... Um, so it's confusing. And sometimes when uh, Buddhist, Western Buddhist teachers talk about uh, these, they kind of gloss over this a little bit too quickly, mindfulness of feelings, as if, you know, oh, oh of course, that's what I like to do. And, they, they, you know, and, um, uh, and even Bhikkhu Bodhi translates this in this very definitive kind of, you know, text that looks very solid, right? This is the, uh, this is the kind of probably the most established translation to English nowadays. He also translated it as feelings. Um, a translation that I kind of like, or a translation which is maybe more like an explanation, is um, the feeling tone. The feeling tone of an experience. Or some, I know some people translate it as the hedonic tone. And um, because Buddhists are hedonists. Hedonic tone... Uh, um, the idea is that what we're talking about here is something very, very simple. And that is that aspect of feeling that perceives, registers things as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither unpleasant or pleasant. So that element of perception, of recognition, of feeling, feeling tone. So um, there are things which maybe are 
um, you know, it's really obvious if someone someone takes uh, a chalk and rubs it a wrong way across a chalkboard, it's intensely unpleasant for most people. And if uh, someone comes along very gently and very warm, soft hand and strokes, you know, your cheek or gives you a massage or something, it feels very pleasant. The experience is very pleasant or unpleasant. Certain music is experienced as pleasant or unpleasant. I don't know if it's inherent in the music because music which was unpleasant when we were, you know, anyway, things change. I remember <laughs> the first time I watched The Beatles was on the Ed Sullivan show with my mother. And, uh, and I remember she, she, said, she said in Norwegian, she said, but do you understand, you understand it if I say it in English because it's almost the same words. Uh, she said, oh, cat music, cat music, these cats screeching. <laughs> And now she thinks it's great. So somehow what's pleasant and unpleasant can't change over time. And uh, But anyway, the, the way we perceive something as being pleasant or unpleasant or neither. And that's kind of the simple... When this, when this Vedana, this foundation of mindfulness is discussed or usually explained like on retreats, it's usually that's usually kind of the basic explanation that's given. And then sometimes people, teachers will go and kind of give examples of how this works and talk about why, why this is a very important thing to do, which it is. And I'll do some of the same thing tonight. So now as that is, with that as a background, I would like to read this section. And those of you who have heard teachings on this, on the feeling tone in Vedana before, on retreat or here or somewhere else, uh, should listen particularly carefully to see if uh, you have ever heard anything like this before. And how bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu, bhikkhu means a monk, but here it's understood to be anybody who is a serious practitioner. And how monks, does a monk abide contemplating feeling as feeling? Sometimes this is translated as feeling in feeling. Sometimes it's translating feeling... um, in and of itself. How do you connect to the feeling, the feeling tone, in and of itself with kind of a kind of a simplicity, simplicity of being, a simplicity of perception, where you're not going to experience it through a lot, a filter of a lot of interpretations or judgments, uh, just in and of itself, just how it is and the simplicity of it. No stories, no meaning making added to it. So you know you feel an itch, and suddenly you think you have melanoma. You know, that's not experiencing the feeling in and, in, in and of itself. That's adding layers of interpretation to it or suppositions or whatever. So, so to keep it really simple, how does, it, how does a monk keep it simple and just experience feeling as feelings? Here, when a feeling of pleasant feeling... No, here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, a monk understands... I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling a painful feeling, he or she understands, I feel a painful feeling. When feeling neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he or she understands, I feel a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. When feeling a... So I'll read his translation for it, and there's a warning to you. Um, other people have different translations of what I'm about to read, and and I don't think his trans, his choice, Vikabodhi's choice here is good. I'll offer you some later ones to talk about it later. When feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, 
he or she understands, I feel a worldly, pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly, pleasant feeling, he or she understands, I feel an unworldly, pleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly, pleasant, painful feeling, he or she understands, I feel a worldly, painful feeling. When feeling an unworldly, painful feeling, he or she understands, I feel an unworldly, painful feeling. When feeling a worldly, neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he or she understands, I feel a worldly, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly, neither painful or pleasant feeling, he or she understands, I feel an unworldly, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Now, this is not going to make it into, you know, the great spiritual quotes of all times. <laughs> you know, Buddhist books of inspirational writing, right? This doesn't kind of make you feel bubbly inside and inspired. And I don't think it does. Um, but it's very, very straightforward. It's, it's almost kind of, I don't know exactly what, but like a manual or very technical. This, you know, when you feel X, you, you know you're feeling X. When you feel Y, you know you're feeling Y. So it's a kind of a description of a very basic movement of mindfulness. And mindfulness is really simple. It's When X happens, you know that X is happening in and of itself. Mindfulness itself doesn't interpret it, doesn't, doesn't judge the situation. That's why some people find mindfulness so liberating and so happy-making. There was a person today who said she felt so happy because she realized that just to be a mindful just to be mindful was enough she spent years practicing and doing everything else but you know trying to be mindful but just just mindfulness was enough and it made her happy just to be mindful of what was going arising in her situation so the basic movement of mindfulness is when something is happening in the simplicity of that experiencing knowing what that experience is and to say in the simplicity of the experience it says a lot because of this tremendous tendency of human beings to assign meaning and to judge and to personify it or to take it personally what's going on. We do all this stuff with it rather than just experiencing it very simply. So here we have kind of a lengthy description of this process of experiencing something very simply. And maybe it is inspiring if you get into that kind of kind of what's being pointed to in that uh, it's kind of very, or if it resonates with you having done this, done this for yourself, there's a kind of tremendous refreshment of the mind when the mind is able to just be in the present moment in the simplicity of this moment. This moment this is what the experience is. When X happens, you know X is happening. Here, in contemplating or being aware of Vedana, this feeling tone, there's this very simple thing of knowing that when a feeling, when a perception, or when, a kind of re- when something registers being, being unpleasant, you know that it's unpleasant. And when you register something as pleasant, you know that it's pleasant. And when it's neither of those, uh, sometimes people say, uh, translate this as being when it's neutral. And there might be an important distinction between saying neutral and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But uh, I, don't, I don't quite know what that distinction is myself. But often we say neutral. And... Um, um, So you're just seeing it very simply. This is what's happening. Yes. Yeah, I'll get to that as I go through it. Thank you. 
And um, so when there's a painful feeling, one knows it's a painful feeling. Um, one of the reasons why... So this, this particular exercise of seeing the, the, the feeling tone of our experience is considered one of the key elements towards learning to liberate the mind or the heart. So in, in, in Buddhist kind of spirituality that comes out of this early tradition that uses, uses mindfulness, this is a really key way of understanding our life is through the feeling tone of our experience. So stay with me now because it's such an important one. If I try to do my best here to make the um, the theory is that all experience that we can experience will have one of those three elements as part of that experience. It'll either be pleasant, or it'll be unpleasant, or it somehow it'll be neither, neutral or something. Some of you might say, "Well, yes, there's a fourth category. It can be both." At the same time, it can be both pleasant and unpleasant. But um, there's this kind of, you know, uh, as we have some experiences, and they can be very gross experiences, you know. Tomorrow, you'll, some of you will experience the election. And some of you will experience election as being unpleasant. And some of you will experience it being pleasant. And some of you will experience it as being neither. And some will experience it as both. But it's, you know, the whole, the whole thing. Or different aspects of it, you know, as someone gets ahead and head in the, in the and someone gets other gets ahead, and depending on who's ahead, it's pleasant or unpleasant the election. But the experience of the election is, you know, somehow. So it, at that very gross level, we can experience something at that level, and then at the very kind of minute level, it can be that way also. That um, simply uh, the texture of your or the touch of your fingers against each other can feel can feel pleasant. A little, little bit sensuous kind of feeling there, or um, um, uh, certain sounds can seem pleasant or unpleasant. Certain sensations in the body, the breath, can feel pleasant or unpleasant. The details of the breath, just a simple movement of, very subtle little movement of the breath, as the diaphragm expands, that sense of expansion can feel pleasant, or it can feel unpleasant depending on how it's, what's happening there. I remember so many times, not so many times, but enough times that I don't remember how many times, um, practicing in Asia, in Thailand, and mostly in Thailand, in India, in Nepal, not so much, also every, everywhere I practiced in Southeast Asia, being on these long retreats. How many times I was constipated? <laughs> and, you know, if you're really constipated... And you're trying to follow your breath, you know, and you're kind of bloated, and it's not very pleasant. That's the way it is. Unpleasant feeling. <laughs> so uh, I don't know why I had to tell you that. <laughs> so the theory is that everything has this quality. How we experience stuff. Then the idea is that in Buddhism. Buddhist psychology, is that a lot of the way in which we react to our experience is a reaction to whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, or neither. And I find it quite humbling or embarrassing to realize how much 
I am, and I think many of the human, many human beings, find themselves motivated by the simple amoeba-like pull towards pleasant and push away from unpleasant. And there's a lot of times people have tremendous justification for what they're doing. Um, but at the very genesis, justification arises out of, it's a justification of how it's okay to go towards the pleasant, to experience that pleasure, or to avoid the discomfort, the unpleasant. And I suspect that sometimes whole political philosophies have their origins in the simple movement of pleasant and unpleasant. Certain things are unpleasant. Certain experiences, certain kinds of people or whatever. And so then we try to create some philosophy that protects us from having contact with that kind of situation, that kind of person or whatever, because we think it's... And so this whole thing arises. Um, And uh, one exercise that's given quite frequently in Thailand when you kind of kind of beginning exercises for learning mindfulness or learning how the, how the body-mind works, is you're instructed to um, sit still in a chair, more or less sit in a chair, and then notice how many times you shift your posture and why you're shifting your posture. And the point of the exercise is to convey to people, if the exercise works, is that um, there's constantly little shifts in the posture that often have to do with moving away from discomfort, trying to make the body more comfortable. There's a constant movement going on, except when you're meditating, right? Because when we meditate, we sit still, and if we can. Um, And it isn't just, you know, gross movements, but also movements of the mind. The mind itself, in a sense, moves or reacts to its contact with pleasant and unpleasant. So sometimes if something pleasant is there, the mind leans forward or kind of the whole body can lean forward. We grab onto it or we, we, we somehow get ourselves entangled in it because we like it and we get attached to it perhaps. If it's an unpleasant experience, the mind has other reactions to it. it the mind also might contract or resist or pull away or have a whole other kind of strategies involved in trying to avoid something. One strategy is uh, falling asleep or you know, tuning out or numbing out when things are too unpleasant. And some people have developed a great expertise in being able to do that, uh, to numb out. Um, I was very good at doing this when I was, at, I think I was maybe 11, 12, 13. And I called it my Sears mind. And my mother would take me clothes shopping at Sears. <laughs> And this is something that I hated. And I would get so tired and so sleepy in those aisles at Sears. And then we would leave and she would say something, do you like some ice cream or something? I'd leave, you know, as soon as I left, I was quite perky, you know. <laughs> and that kind of sleepiness was a strategy of aversion, of resistance, of, you know, it was a kind of way of responding to that unpleasant, what I thought, what I experienced as an unpleasant situation. So what, what Buddhist psychology teaches is that based on whether things are pleasant or unpleasant, there is some form of grasping that happens or, or craving. And craving is shorthand for any driven movement where the, where the psyche is driven or feels compulsed to either resist, push away, or hold on to something. 
And it might be that some of you now, you know, can resist a lot of things, don't have that, you know. Uh, some things, some some things, you know, you, you go see, a, you know, you go you go by your store window and you see something really wonderful. You see, you know, a wonderful next generation of Palm Pilot or you know, Game Boy or something, and you know, oh, that looks like a pleasant thing, and you keep walking. Um, there was a koan that I did. I, for a couple of years, I did koans with uh, Robert Aiken Rushi. Koan, these kind of enigmatic kind of questions you have to kind of solve in a way. And you kind of have, you're given it, and then you have to kind of digest it for a while, and you go back and you present it to the teacher, and you know, <laughs> come back tomorrow, kid, you know. And, and then you try again, and you just, you know, you just try again, try again. But there was one, I don't remember it so well anymore, because we went through a whole series of them. But I think it had to do with you know how to handle uh, desire, because it, uh, uh, I remember very well the answer. But the question was something like, um, um, you know, I shouldn't probably say it, but the gist of it was something like, if it's really beautiful, attractive, sexually attractive person for you comes along and smiles to you, what do you do? And don't, this is not literal. I don't remember this, this koan so well. But the answer was something like, um, that at least the answer the Zen master was happy with that I presented, <laughs> was um, uh, you smile, say hello, and keep walking. Uh, so this idea of kind of, it's a pleasant situation, and you don't grab on. You just kind of look to... Or the story, I guess a similar story of Ajahn Sumedho in Thailand. And, and um, he was with Ajahn Chah, his teacher and and um, and uh, I guess a very beautiful woman came to the monastery and was talking to the two of them for a while and then she left and uh, Ajahn Chah said well <laughs> and Ajahn Sumedho said I like but I don't want he appreciated it but he didn't there's no desire there for it so um so, based on the feeling tone of an experience, there can be kind of a very raw, primitive, almost movement towards desire or aversion. And the opportunity that it's said, the opportunity that exists, is if you can notice the experience at the level of it being pleasant or unpleasant, then you have a chance of noticing that reaction that sets in. Whether you're leaning forward to grab it, or whether you're pulling back or resisting it, getting angry, or you know, whatever, whatever the reaction is, there's an opportunity to see there. And it's said that that place where you can see the difference between those two steps, the feeling tone and the experience, and the desire, the craving that arises based on that, that is a that, in that gap between that in that gap between those two is a place where you can find it's possible to liberate the mind. It's possible not to, to kind of just let go, in a sense, or not to take that step, or not to get involved with that clinging. Just leave it alone. Just let the feeling be as it is. Appreciate what's pleasant, you know, experience the unpleasant, but don't do anything with it. Don't have, don't have the mind getting reactive and caught up in it and assign meaning to it. Just let, let the simplicity of it, of it just be. Um, 
a lot of people will say, well, that's fine for the pleasant, but why should I do that with the unpleasant? When things are uncomfortable, isn't it reasonable to try to make yourself more comfortable? And uh, it is reasonable to make yourself more comfortable, and in normal circumstances, it's good to do that. But uh, in practice situations, one of the things that, you know, when you're practicing, practicing meditation, you don't want to be chasing after comfort all the time. What you want to chase after, if anything, is liberation, is freedom, is that ability of the, of the mind to stay at peace and equanimous in the presence of any experience at all. And so if you feel discomfort in meditation, one of the really good choices you can make is to just learn how to work with that discomfort until you find that place where the mind can be at peace with the discomfort being there. It's okay for it to be there. Where the mind is not getting, hasn't gotten involved in either subtle or gross levels of reactivity to that being there. Um, and it's a really wonderful training because if you wanted to be liberated, you need to have be able to be liberated in all circumstances. You know, if you're just liberated when things are pleasant, you know, I don't know if it's really liberation then. Um, and also, you don't never know what life's going to give you. And you never know when you're going to end up with some uncomfortable situation that you have no choice but to experience. And if you've trained yourself through the practice to, when unpleasant situations arise, to stay with it and not try to manipulate or fix it, it gives you a tremendous uh, power and strength and flexibility to then learn how to find that in other unpleasant situations in life. So this ability to start tuning into the feeling tone of the experience is considered very important. And I know some practitioners who uh, have made it one of the primary things they do in meditation sometimes, where they just pay attention to the feeling tone of what's going on. Oh, that's pleasant, that's unpleasant, that's pleasant, that's unpleasant. And kind of whatever's arising, just noticing how that is. Or it's neither, noting it's neither. And I haven't done a lot of this, I've done some of this. But some of my friends have done a lot of it, say that for them it's been very, very helpful uh, to just tune into that aspect of experience. And you can imagine why it's useful now, because so much of our reactivity arises out of our reaction to the pleasant and unpleasant. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so it's a way of discovering kind of simplicity of being. When things arise, we let them be. We let ourselves be. Just let things be as they are. So then it goes on. Um, so it's, it describes you know, these, these three categories. Pleasant, painful, and either pleasant or painful. Now, as maybe this can be a footnote to the talk, um, the actual words in Pali for pleasant and unpleasant are uh, uh, sukha and dukkha. And when I saw, saw this in Pali, I was quite surprised because uh, pleasant and unpleasant is the usual translation I've seen. And actually the words uh, should more literally be translated into English as um, happiness and suffering. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering. And I don't know why it's always translated as uh, pleasant and unpleasant, but I think that um, the, the, um, the, uh, the understanding here is that um, we experience things as pleasant or unpleasant, or as a happy experience or an unhappy experience, both because it's inherent in the experience that it's a pleasant experience, and because of the way in which we do react to the experience. We interpret and all that. 
So, for example, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but um, I know when I was young, uh, the first time I tasted coffee, and my thought was, this tastes like dishwashing water. And then, uh, with time, I learned to enjoy coffee. So, I don't know, if maybe the coffee's gotten better over the years. <laughs> and that's what's happened. But uh, I think there's such things as acquired tastes. Certain things by association become more pleasant over time. And the story I like to tell is of when I was a, a college student at Davis, UC Davis. You know, I had this experience of uh, riding through the Thule fog in the wintertime on my bicycle without gloves. And my hands were bitterly cold, so much that it would take me a few minutes once I got to class to my thought, my hands, so I can, I can actually take notes in class. It was that cold. And so it was biting. And I used to go to, to, go to school feeling self-pity. You know, feeling, oh, poor Gil. This is terrible. It's suffering. And, um, and I wasn't smart enough to think, well, get gloves. <laughs> and, um, but I just, you know. And so then, uh, but one day I was doing this you know, exercise of self-pity, which I was getting good at. And then I um, remembered that the sensations I had in my hands, the biting, painful sensations, were the same sensations in my hand, as far as I could tell, that I used to have when I was a teenager, I'd go skiing. And then it was exhilarating. And the interpretation of that pain depended a lot on, you know, whether it was, whether it was painful or unpleasant or happy or, you know, or unhappy kind of experience. It had a lot to do with levels of interpretation on top of it. Because after I realized that connection to skiing, then I could go biking in the Thule fog. The same thing would happen, but it wouldn't bother me so much, the pain. I realized when my mind was creating part of the you know, intensity or the suffering of it all. So when, it's, when the text says either you know, sukha or dukkha, happy or unhappy, I think it's pointing to the fact that um, you know, it really has to do with how we meet any experience whether it's at a complicated level of a lot of reactivity or very raw, simple, with no reactivity, at any level, we can tune into how we're experiencing this as happy, unhappy, pleasant, unpleasant. Sometimes it's in the inherent, in the inherent in the experience itself that it's pleasant and unpleasant, and sometimes it's not inherent, but it has to do a lot with what we add to the experience that makes it a happy experience or an unhappy experience. Regardless of what it is, to notice that when you get happy, to leave happiness alone. Because I know a lot of people who get attached to their happiness, and that causes problems. I know a lot of people have get add suffering to their life by resisting the unhappy, by judging it and whatever. So this is an exercise in keeping it, trying to, learning to keep things as simple as possible. And it's that simplicity, finding a kind of level of peace with our experience. Then it goes on to say, when feeling a worldly pleasant feeling he or she understands, I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. And then it says the same thing about worldly unpleasant and worldly neither pleasant or unpleasant. The word for worldly, and this is what I said earlier, I'm not very satisfied with this choice of word. Because then later it talks about unworldly. Unworldly? Otherworldly? Unworldly? What's, you know, what's, what's, this, what's this about? And some people have then, it suggests kind of value judgment. You know, unworldly? The word um, in Pali is um, uh, uh, samisa and nir samisa. Nir means kind of negative or not. And samisa means something like uh, of the flesh or meat or carnal. 
And some people translate this as sensual. Um, or some, I've seen someplace carnal. Or a pleasure, a pleasure of the flesh. But I think sensual works really well. So when you have a sensual pleasant feeling, one knows that it's sensual pleasant feeling. When it's sensual unpleasant feeling, one knows it's un- sensual unpleasant feeling. So it's very simple. It's by the body, the sensual experiences of, of life. Um, and then, unworldly, is that, 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 that which is pleasant but is not connected to the senses. And there's a whole, slew, a, whole, a whole range of emotions and feelings that arise independent of our sensual embodied experience. There's meditative experiences of joy, of bliss, of equanimity, of peace that are said not to be born of our sensual body. There's often a confusion in society between sensual pleasure and happiness. And it's been argued that people who have some kind of addiction issue with alcohol or food or sex or sleep or whatever, that sometimes, or maybe more often than not, that there's an element in that addiction of confusing uh, sensual pleasure for happiness. Because it gives a kind of, hap- kind of a pleasure that comes from these kinds of experiences, but it's not really happiness. And in the long term, it leaves people feeling kind of empty. So here we're talking about... Um, so, so to recognize the difference between that which is sensual pleasantness versus that which is pleasantness which is not born from the senses. It's not a value judgment in each one, but there are two different categories of pleasant experiences, two different categories of unpleasant experiences based on whether they're sensual or not sensual. And the suggestion here is that you should know that distinction. You should know when you're having a sensual pleasant feeling, this is born from a sensual experience. When you're having a pleasant experience which doesn't seem to be connected to the senses, you know that it's unconnected to the senses. That's, I, think, I think it's very useful because as a person makes that distinction, then it's easier to recognize the kind of deep satisfaction, deeper, I suspect, much deeper sense of satisfaction and sense of well-being that comes from that kind of pleasantness or joy or happiness which is not born from the sensual world. And one of the key uh, ways in which the Buddha found his enlightenment was that he remembered a capacity he had to experience joy independent of sensual joy, of experiencing sensuality of the body. And so then he went into that non-sensual joy as a, as a, as a kind of um, doorway into that process that led to his awakening. So, um, so that's the exercise. And then there's the refrain, which is the same for every exercise. And I'll read just a part of the refrain. In this way, one abides contemplating feelings as feelings, internally and externally. And one abides contemplating in feelings the nature of their arising, how they arise, how they come into existence. One abides contemplating the feelings in their nature of vanishing, how they pass away. Noticing how these arise and pass these things. And one abides contemplating in the feelings both their arising and their passing away. Or else, mindfulness that there is feeling is simply established in him or her 
to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And here she abides, independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating feeling as feeling. That's it. I hope it was a pleasant experience tonight. <laughs> if it was not a pleasant experience, it's your responsibility it's your responsibility of how you choose to react to that. And um, so I didn't mean to talk until nine o'clock. If some of you have questions about this topic, um, the, I thought maybe uh, you could stay afterwards and come up here afterwards or something, probably. Because it is unpleasant to be held back captive. <laughs> and uh, so um, thank you very much for your attention.